Hello, folks, and welcome to The Farm, a podcast dedicated to culture, parapolitics, and high weirdness in all its many forms. This is your host, Recluse, a.k.a. Steven Snyder, the longtime curator of the Visa blog and author of A Special Relationship, Trump, Epstein, and the Secret History of the Anglo-American Establishment. If you like what you hear here today, be sure to check me out at visaview.blogspot.com. That's V-I-S-U-P-V-I-E-W, all one word, dot blogspot.com. And be sure a copy of that book, I'm out of the works at the farm's official store, which is at thefarmpodcast.store. That is the farm podcast, all one word, dot store. And please consider signing up for the farm's Patreon. You get two additional full-length shows per month. That's between three and four hours of bonus material with exclusive guests and content. And that's just the lowest tier. The all-access patrons have even more goodies to look forward to, including exclusive all-access uh, content with yours truly. Most recently, I have been following some of those incredible satanic ritual abuse allegations in Utah and have got some really juicy information up there for you guys. So definitely consider investing a little bit in that folks anyway today's guest is a newbie to the farm he is a college professor a mixed martial artist and a contributor to such publications as center for research on globalization op-ed news intrepid report dissonant voice among others he is also the author of the fabulous school world order which i highly recommend folks i give you guys the great john kleizek John, thank you so much for joining us this evening, sir. Hey, thank you very much for having me, Recluse. I really, really appreciate it. All right, folks, this is going to be a great one. As you may have imagined, this show is going to be centered around education. On the firm's Patreon, I've launched a series chronicling the secret history of the gifted program. This show is a bit of a supplement to that series, giving you guys more of a broader overview of education in the 20th century in America and beyond. This includes how it's being merged with data mining to create the ultimate corporate workforce, the legacy of eugenics in America's education system, and how our kids are being used to program the AI overlords of the future. It's gonna be quite a show, so let's dig in. All right, John, to start off with, tell us a bit about outcome-based education, quote-unquote, and how it was envisioned as a means of creating the ideal corporate workforce. Okay, so uh, to understand outcomes-based education, uh, there's four aspects that you need to get your head wrapped around. So the first one is PPBS, which is uh, Programming, Planning, and Budgeting Systems, uh, which was developed by the military. Uh, and then there's like a business version of that, which is TQM or total quality management. Uh, and then you have to understand how behavioral conditioning is used to achieve uh, basically these outcomes for various institutions and corporations. Uh, and then moving more specifically to schools, you have to look at a couple of pedagogical methods known as mastery learning, and direct instruction. So PPBS was developed around the Eisenhower era, uh, and it was basically a military program for how to efficiently plan, organize, and, and budget uh, military institutions. But then they sort of uh, farmed it out to the larger corporate sector, and then that changed the acronym to Total Quality Management. Okay, uh, so 
basically the same system, but just, you know, looking at it in terms of, you know, how to create profits and manage markets. Uh, moving that into the education system, uh, there's the mastery learning and the direct instruction are a couple pedagogical methods. And basically, you know, they're euphemistic for the same thing. And what they both have in common is uh, behavioral conditioning. Okay. And basically we're talking about educational psychology in terms of uh, going all the way back to classical conditioning, like, you know, the, the Wilhelm Wundt's stimulus response method, which later becomes behaviorist conditioning under people like E.L. Thorndike, and then eventually operant conditioning with someone like B.F. Skinner. So basically, to put them all together, um, mastery learning and direct instruction are tied to outcomes-based education in the sense that the curriculum is designed to basically condition the student to achieve or to meet certain predetermined outcomes. And the behavioral conditioning methods are used to put the, uh, to get the student to meet those outcomes, all right? And then those outcomes are tied to TQM in the sense that the, out, the learning outcomes are not necessarily just academic. Now, if you, know, if you perform well enough, uh, you know, advanced placement or honors or something, then you know, in some ways they're not really conditioning you so, so much for the workforce, but you know, if you don't achieve at the level that they have predetermined for you, well, then you're going to be tracked into various forms of you know remedial or vocational education, uh, and that means that you're going to be conditioned to basically fill uh, workforce placement that's predetermined uh, by the markets that are being managed by TQM. Okay, and so basically, what you know to sort of summarize it. Uh, outcomes-based education is, you know, conditioning students psychologically to meet workforce outcomes. And this has really been like an ongoing process. I mean, of the educational uh, hierarchy, I mean, since what, at least around the 20s or 30s or something like that, right? When we sort of uh, tried to apply scientific principles, quote unquote, to create uh, the ultimate uh, corporatist society. Um, and this is, of course, sort of like what was envisioned by people like Dewey for the masses, of course, um, you know, as I kind of get into in the Patreon at the same time, you also had the gifted program uh, emerging. There were the, sort of the two uh, early versions, the one in uh, California centered around Stanford, which was really the major one. And then there was some other work being done in New York. But yeah, this was um, essentially on the other, the kind of flip side of the coin where you were trying to locate um, the individuals who could be groomed to uh, hold the uh, positions of importance in the uh, coming order. So it's kind of a, a fascinating overlap there. And also um, as well, it kind of uh, goes into the ongoing debate over nature and nurture that uh, has been unfolding in psychology uh, for many decades now. And uh, certainly it kind of seems like, and this was one of the things I have noticed uh, that's fascinating to me, it kind of seems like when you look at more of the, uh, let's say the plebeian side of education, uh, there was definitely more of a preference uh, for nurture and kind of the behavioralist approach, whereas uh, hereditary is a big, hereditary is a big thing. And uh, the gifted program was definitely this obsession that a lot of it was, uh, ultimately transferred down by genes. I mean, you know, stimulus could do so much, but uh, if you didn't have the right genes, it just wasn't going to work. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, in, in Brave New World, you know, Aldous Huxley, sort of the first couple chapters are like the world building or plot building 
uh, parts of the novel. And in the first uh, chapter, we're introduced to uh, the hatching and conditioning centers. Uh, and, you know, the lower level is the hatcheries where basically it's all eugenics and, and biological conditioning. And then in the second layer, it's, uh, it's it's all the it's the neo Pavlovian conditioning centers right and so then it's all sort of stimulus response how to use the environment uh, to you know get the get the children to behave in terms of their caste but right they're they're bound to their biological caste uh, and you know later on we'll probably get into transhumanism which is basically where you know as Huxley sort of is alluding to uh, early on in that you know in that. Uh, novel during a time when you know it was largely like sort of a debate like nature versus nurture right it wasn't a whole lot of uh overlap although you had people like james mckean cattell who had his uh phd from voint but was also really into galton so he was sort of one of the first people to sort of want to combine them into like behavioral genetics or behavioral eugenics uh but when you when you get into basically neuroscience you're sort of combining you know biological conditioning and psychological conditioning through neurotech. So instead of stimulus response through external environmental stimuli or learning stimuli on a screen uh, and, and having that be, you know, rooted in or sort of limited to the student's genetic capacity, right? You can sort of put the stimulus directly into the biology through the brain computer interface and then potentially, you know, tinker around with, with the genetics with something called the it's called precision education, but I'm probably getting ahead. Uh, for yeah, that. yeah, we'll get into more of that lovely stuff in a little bit. But yeah, it's important, though, to note, like, all of this is sort of like an outgrowth of like, what's known as life sciences, which were, again, essentially created in this, uh, the time frame I was talking about earlier, like around the 20s or 30s, largely with a lot of funding from the Rockefellers, which was meant to harmonize a lot of these different approaches and it's from this we get the kind of modern art of genetics along with neuroscience and a lot of this other stuff so yeah this was um basically uh, an ongoing project and uh, i mean it didn't start you know with world war ii or the cold war like a lot of people assume i mean it I suppose in a lot of ways, I mean, art went back to Galton and I mean, a lot of these other people from like the uh, mid 19th century, at least, but uh, I don't want to get too far down the weeds with this. <laughs> All right. So how was outcome based education rebranded as competency based education around the 1990s? Yeah, so competency-based education is pretty much the same thing as outcomes-based education, except that they sort of are a little more particular in terms of uh, the methodology, okay? So there's a few things that you can use to distinguish uh, the competency-based education from the outcomes-based education. And the first one is basically minimal mastery, okay? And so, you know, conditioning for outcomes that are, you know, minimal competence or mastery, meaning, you know, just enough to perform whatever workforce role you've been sort of tracked into. Uh, and then there's a personalized or individualized uh, element, meaning that uh, competency-based education, uh, rather than sort of targeting, you know, larger populations or, you know, sort of a ham-fisted approach to sort of just dividing the class into the gifted and the remedial, uh, they want to sort of, you know, tailor the education uh, based on uh, each student's, you know, psychological or biological proclivities. Uh, and then the third part, is, which sort of goes along with the personalized or individualized uh, conditioning is this self-directed or self-paced education. 
right? And so basically we're the, one of the ways that you individualize a student towards their minimal mastery is, is through, uh, is by letting them work at their own pace, right? And, and this works in both directions. So, you know, if you're particularly gifted, right? Uh, let's say you have a classroom and you've got a, you know, a sort of a generic curriculum for the whole classroom. And this class is filled with people of varying ranges of uh, academic prowess. And, you know, so, so the, the gifted kids, right, they're, they're going to be able to move sort of ahead. But, you know, if, this, if the teacher is, you know, going through the textbook, you know, they can't, they have to keep teaching to everybody. So the, the, the gifted students are sort of like, you know, waiting to move to the next lesson because they have to wait for other students to catch up. Whereas at the other end of the spectrum, right, eventually it's time to move on regardless of how many people have it. And so there's always students that are sort of left behind who haven't grasped the concept yet, right? And so people who need extra remediation and people who would like to move uh, forward more quickly in the curriculum, you know, basically you need an individualized approach. And the only way to really do that is through technology, right? Because uh, again, if you have a teacher that's sort of, you know, has to transmit the curriculum to entire classes, right? That one person can't give individualized attention to everybody equally at the exact same time, right? But a computer, which is conditioned with these operant conditioning and other stimulus response algorithms can. And if the student is able to, uh, you know, move more quickly through the curriculum, well, then they can, you know, they can move all the way on and maybe even, you know, they get to sort of, you know, start working on stuff that would be designated for a higher grade. And whereas, you know, students who need more time to be remediated, right? Well, they don't, you know, they don't have to worry about being left behind because they can sort of take their, their time with it. And, um, you know, one of the things I wrote about uh, in the wake of, of COVID uh, were some federal regulations, uh, 85 FR 1868, uh, I'm sorry, 1863. Well, you can get the, the uh, there's an article on my website, info that has the exact uh, code. I'm pretty sure it's 85 FR 1863. So it's, it's the, the, the name of the federal regulation is um, distance learning and innovation, okay? And basically what this, this uh, if you look through those regulations, which were, uh, I think, April uh, 2020, which were issued at that time, uh, they think that the, the term competency-based education is used, I want to say, over 100 times in it. Again, the, pre the precise figures are in the, are in, uh, the article uh, that's on my website. Um, and a couple other things that they mention in there is uh, basically that uh, they, they use the term adaptive learning, okay, and that's the modern Skinner box teaching machine. It's just a digital version of it. And there's also a clause in there which basically says that it's that they authorize uh, essentially limited human interaction. So in order for a class to be accredited. Uh, it, you would have to have a certain amount of interaction between the, the students and the human teacher um, to sort of qualify for accreditation. And in these, these new distance learning regulations, basically what they say is that, well, you know, it, it's okay to replace the human to human student teacher interaction with, with, which, with quote, artificial intelligence meaning adaptive learning software. And it's worth noting here that uh, there was some, some people that worked for IBM that were on uh, the board that sort of uh, made these, these decisions. So that's, that's sort of how it's, you know, sort of an offshoot of OBE and sort of how it's 
uh, you know, picking up steam now in the in the whole uh, post-COVID era. Okay, so let's talk about the infamous Common Core for a moment. Uh, it's been criticized on a number of fronts. I know I'm, I'm not a parent myself, but I've definitely uh, had quite a few friends with uh, kids over the years express uh, profound disgust at Common Core. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, rarely criticized on the grounds, though, being an exercise in data mining. So what can you tell us about this aspect of it? Um, so the data mining from Common Core largely comes through a couple of their, what they call their assessment consortiums, basically their iterations of uh, low standardized testing. And there's, uh, there's two consortiums. The first one is uh, the PARC slash RTTT, which is the PARC, P-A-R-C-C, stands for Partnership for Assessment of Readiness for College and Careers. Um, so you see there's the, also the workforce training language in it. Uh, and then the RTTT is Race to the Top. And those are, you know, both of them um, sort of part of the same consortium. Uh, what they both have in common, those, those two sort of branches of the same consortium, is uh, that those... The, their iteration of, this, of these new standardized tests are basically computer-based, all right? And then uh, the, the other uh, consortium was known as Smarter Balanced Assessment Consortium, so the SBAC. And that one in particular uh, also used computer-based assessments, but specifically it uses adaptive online exams. So it's talking about adaptive learning coursework, which again, uh, is the, it's the modern Skinner box, okay? And what it does is, so, you know, B.F. Skinner came up with operant conditioning uh, and he had, he had what was called the, his Skinner box experiments, which was based on E.L. Thorndike's puzzle box experiments. So E.L. Thorndike was, you know, one of the guys that sort of took off with behaviorism uh, and he took this classical stimulus response method uh, and sort of added some uh, routines for uh, reward and punishment uh, to get, animals to be able to meet, perform certain behaviors. So, you know, the, the, the rat in the maze, that type of thing. Uh, Skinner basically does the same thing, except he adds four quadrants or, or rather two more quadrants. So instead of just positive and negative, or I'm sorry, uh, reward and punishment, he had positive and negative reward, positive and negative punishment. Okay. Uh, and his is termed operant condition because uh, he wanted to basically, instead of just have sort of a, an associative stimulus response, he, he would have, you know, the animal would have to perform something or perform some operation specifically. So, you know, the, he did a lot of stuff with pigeons, right? So the pigeon would, to get the food, might have like a light blink. And when the light blinks, the, the, uh, the pigeon has to peck this button to get the pellet. And the pigeon can only, well, the, the button only works when the light is flashing, right? So if the, if the pigeon texts the button when the light's not flashing, they don't get food and they have to learn this association. They have to perform this, this function. So you, so you take that principle and instead of, you know, using animals in, in various experiments, you, you uh, change the stimulus to basically learning stimulus. Uh, so, you know, basically multiple choice, question, answer, matching, sh short response, et cetera. Uh, and you put those answers on sort of a wheel of tape Okay, uh, if you ever seen like the old Viewmasters, 
that's kind of what these old, these original analog Skinner box machines looked like, right? So his, his early versions were analog. They, had, they didn't have any, you know, electronic components, didn't have any digital components, wasn't computerized. And so you'd have like on the wheel it would be sort of a question or an answer uh, or a blank for the answer. And then you rotate the wheel and it only goes one way. Uh, and then you either scribe your answer onto the, uh, the blank or maybe, you know, fill in a fill in sort of the the blank uh like the letter you know for the matching or whatever uh and then as you wheel your way through you get to the end of it then you take the card out or the teacher would unlock the box take the card out and then you'd find you know how how well did you do in terms of the answer so you'd be able to see uh the answers uh as you go and sometimes they'd be they'd be set where you know you turn the wheel and you, you can immediately see your answer. So you get the immediate feedback, okay? And then eventually he did some stuff with uh, IBM where IBM started to use like the punch card systems and then some of the, some early, you know, uh, electronics computers. Uh, and then eventually, you know, you basically take the same concept and you just change, you know, gears and wheels and, you know, the old punch card system and you just change it into... Uh, windows on a digital screen clicks on a mouse maybe you you know make it a little more entertaining with like some multimedia stuff so some videos or maybe gamify it with like a little video game uh, but, but what they all have in common whether it's the you know the the analog system or you know the early IBM models or the modern adaptive learning course where is that they're they're data mining the student for their cognitive behavioral algorithms. In other words, how efficiently, how effectively, and how quickly uh, do they respond to the learning stimuli, right? And based on those responses, then you track the student either into, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the advanced programs or, you know, remediate them, right? But this is sort of, you know, so the, so these, these two um, common core assessment consortiums uh, were using different, you know, computer, assessments that were data mining and in particular the uh, SBAC was using uh, adaptive uh, courseware which is basically you know again it's the it's the uh, digital Skinner box. All right so you argue that during the Trump administration the data mining started by Common Core under the auspices of the state began to transition into a public-private arrangement. So what can you tell us about that sir? So um some of it is, you know, can be traced back a little further uh, than than the than the Trump era. Um, so the the first um, sort of mode of uh, privatization through public private partnerships has to do with the whole charter school industry. Okay, so charter schools are private companies uh, that receive public tax dollars, either federally or state or both. And then there's other versions of what's called school choice programs. So charter schools would fall under school choice um, and others would be like voucher programs. So instead of going to a public private charter school, you would get a voucher from the state. Uh, and then that, that voucher, you could be a certain amount of tax dollars, public funds, and you could take that voucher and you could uh, use it to, to spend it on tuition either at a private school or maybe a charter school uh, or maybe just a different public school in a different district, you know, that's that's better than that, that, that or that, that you like better than the school that you're, uh, that's in your, uh, 
your particular locality. Okay. And then there's also like tax credits for tuition, education, savings accounts, but basically what they all have in common is basically uh, enabling uh, the use of public funds for in some form or another uh, private schools uh, and in the sense of charter schools, right? They literally corporate schools, right? They're, they're, they're literally uh, edu corporations. Uh, and, you know, the concept of charter schooling actually gets traced back to Albert Shanker, who was the president of the American Federation of Teachers, right, which is uh, the second largest teachers union in the United States. Uh, and, you know, he, he came up with that concept basically in the 80s. And Obama really took off with it. Uh, and his secretary of ed, Arne Duncan, uh, was really big promoter of charter schools. Now, you know, he was at one point uh, high up in the Chicago public school system, um, might even been CEO of the Chicago public school system, uh, which, you know, was one of the hotbeds for sort of the early uh, burgeoning uh, rollout of the whole charter school industry. Uh, so, you know, largely, it, you know, you can trace it back a ways, but Definitely during the Trump administration, um, you know, Betsy DeVos was a big proponent of school choice um, and funded all sorts of nonprofits that uh, backed school choice. Uh, and, you know, Trump was very pro school choice. So the whole charter schooling, school choice movement picked up a lot of steam uh, during uh, the Trump era. But, you know, there was there was a lot of uh, buildup you know, in the, in the administration prior. Uh, so other ways that sort of public private partnerships sort of pick up uh, during the uh, uh, DeVos slash Trump uh, administration uh, have to do not just with charter schools themselves, meaning like brick and mortar charter schools, but also, you know, the, the rise of the virtual online charter school. And you have, you know, some pretty large edu corporations such as k-12 inc and then connections academy which is also tied to uh the, the parent its parent company is the pearson corporation which is uh one of the if not the largest edu, uh, ed tech company in the world right it was once a, a publishing company but now it's uh it specializes in ed tech uh, and then the other iteration is basically public private partnerships uh, through ed tech contracts, uh, whether they be with charter schools or with, you know, uh, traditional public schools. And through these ed tech contracts, you have uh, a couple uh, methodologies known as blended learning or hybrid learning. So in, hybrid learning is largely uh, something that we've sort of seen during the COVID era pick up uh, for the sake of social distancing, where half the class uh, is in person for half the week, and then the other half of the class uh, is on uh, is online at home for that day, and then they alternate throughout the week. And blended learning is basically where uh, this, the teacher sort of becomes just like a facilitator of sort of the adaptive learning courseware and the learning management system and whatever else uh, you want to plug in. And the students sort of sit at their, they're in the, the building, but they're basically doing all of their studying, all of their learning through the device through their tablet or their Chromebook or whatever. And the, 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 the teacher just sort of becomes, you know, like a facilitator or, you know, maybe even maybe a tutor, I guess you can, you could 
think of it that way. Uh, and then obviously, you know, during, during COVID, you know, uh, with the whole distance learning uh, thing, you know, we saw this really take off because, you know, it didn't matter if you were in a virtual school or a traditional public school or a private school, everybody had to go home uh, and learn online, right? During, during the, the lockdown phase and some, some places still are and, and a lot of schools that have gone back, especially the colleges, you know, there's been some changes where basically before we didn't have to have our stuff uh, all of our curriculum on the learning management system. We didn't have it have it all uploaded online. But now that right, we had this experience with the lockdown, we have to have everything online. And they, they have been offering a, a larger selection of online courses. Uh, and you know, anytime you have you know sort of a scare, you know, it's we, there was a there was a week back here just this last uh, semester where uh, everybody had to go back home. You know, whether you were online or not. Uh, I, I, you know, moving into the future, I should mention something that's not in the book, which yeah, I touch on it briefly, but another form of uh, public-private partnerships comes through something called community schools, right? And sort of there's like this dialectic between charter schools and community schools. And uh, so charter schools, you know, has a lot of, I guess, right-wing support in the whole school choice thing, you know, pushing the, uh, the public-private charter school companies. Uh, community schools, are a little bit different in the sense that now you can have a community charter school, but uh, there's you, you can also have a community school that is technically a public school. Okay, what makes it a community school is that it has to have uh, three components. One is wraparound services, one is data tracking, and then the other one is lifelong learning. Uh, and for the sake of uh, this, this question here, this topic, the public-private partnerships come through the wraparound services. And the wraparound services come in basically three flavors. So there's workforce placement, healthcare, and then like crime prevention for, you know, students who I guess are behaviorally at risk. And so the data tracking, uh, which comes through, right, digital profiling through the adaptive learning courseware and other types of technologies that we'll talk about in a little bit, uh, that you use that data to track where does the student need to be placed in terms of his or her job, uh, and, and these are, you know, these, these wraparound services are outsourced, right? So you might have, a, a, you know, either different sort of um, internships or placement contracts with particular companies, uh, particular healthcare corporations. Um, and then, you know, through, the, through those profiles, you'll, you know, and the healthcare includes either, it could be physical health, but it could be mental health. And then based on the student's mental health, right, that might deem them to be sort of at risk to become a, a juvenile delinquent. Uh, and then you'll have sort of a criminal justice program where, you know, sort of what they call community oriented policing systems. Uh, maybe maybe some some uh, mental health counselors or some, some uh, you know, uh, law enforcement people will come in and try to intervene and, and guide the student back to, uh, you know, I guess to, to behave better, but, but that's, you know, that's sort of uh, being pushed by Cardona right now, the current secretary of ed. Uh, and then you're, and then of course you're seeing right now as, you know, we get close to these elections that, you know, the, the sort of the Republican establishment is pushing school choice as sort of the counter to community schools. But, you know, you'll, you'll see, I, I put those both out there because you're going to see, you know, uh, sort of a vacillating back and forth depending on which, which um, political party is in power, 
it's either going to be charter schools or community schools, but what they both have in common is public-private partnerships with ed tech companies, uh, and then also, right, these, these wraparound companies. Yeah, and uh, one thing I want to point out, too, that's fascinating with DeVos is, um, you know, obviously the fact that her brother is Eric Prince, uh, the founder of Blackwater, who uh, on the flip side of the coin has been one of the major figures and kind of pushing for the, uh, I suppose, what you could describe as a public-private partnership uh, for the military. Uh, and of course, the widespread use of private military companies, private intelligence companies uh, by the national security state. And um, I mean, it would be fascinating as well to see if more and more of that uh, also starts to uh, materialize in the United States as uh, almost notably with the current circumstances, we're going to be heading towards more uh, domestic instability. I uh, kind of think you might be seeing a sort of rob uh, RoboCop uh, type scenario. I mean, even before we obviously get the, um, uh, the MEM machine integration, the, uh, what was it, OPEC or whatever that owned the cops or something like that. Uh, but yeah, my goodness. Um, and obviously, I mean, the Democrats, they've got uh, dying core, however in the heck it's pronounced, uh, which has been a major backer of this kind of insanity on that end since the Clinton years. It's every bit as bad probably even possibly even worse i mean certainly dying core has been implicated massively in sex trafficking and arms trafficking and lots of other glorious things so yeah everybody gets a piece of this uh, glorious pie in some capacity well you know and you can think of red flag laws as sort of you know basically a version of uh, especially if it's hooked up straight to the students you know, their social media and, and the schools have a direct uh, access to a dashboard. Well, yeah, well, I mean, also, you know? too, because, I mean, so many of these private intelligence companies, as I'm sure we'll get into, I mean, do, you know, use a lot of this data mining and monitoring of social media and what have you to uh, track potential threats and all this other kind of stuff. So, I mean, I can see how this is inevitably headed towards a major integration as well. I mean, certainly through something like Palantir and what have you. Um, oh, and that reminds me real quick before we get uh, back on track here, define ed tech for us, because I know this isn't a term necessarily everybody is super familiar with, and I know we're going to be hearing it a lot. So just kind of give us like a quick definition and that's so we're all on the same page. Okay. Yeah. So uh, yeah, just ed tech broadly just is an abbreviation for education technology. Uh, and, you know, it can, it, it sort of spans a wide variety of, you know, different devices and software. Uh, so, you know, it can include, you know, the, the students hardware, meaning, you know, laptop, desktop, uh, I have a lot of students that use their phones to uh, do their online work and actually type essays and stuff. Uh, and, you know, with COVID now they, they've got, uh, you know, you can, they can lend out like Chromebooks and stuff, but you know, some students, I guess are still using their, their phones. So there's that, you know, that's at the basic level, it's the hardware. And then at the next level, it's, you know, the software. And uh, so first there's the, the learning management system or an LMS. And that's like, if you've, you know, if you've ever taken a class that had anything online, you know, anytime in the past several years, uh, you know, Blackboard, uh, D2L, which is desire to learn. Um, oh, what's the other one? There's another big one that escapes me right now. Uh, uh, Canvas, that's that's the other one that I use. Uh, and so these are like dashboards where you upload uh, and create different learning modules. 
Uh, and you know, this, this is where the students sort of get their the content for the course and they submit assignments and there's discussion po boards and things like that. Uh, chat boxes, and, you know, little uh, messaging email servers. Uh, and then on the LMS, you can build out other uh, apps, okay, with, you know, other software. And, and some of those would be uh, one of the most predominant right now would be the adaptive learning courseware. And that's where basically you have, instead of me just making static modules and say, like, read this assignment sheet and type this essay, or, uh, you know, read this assignment sheet and, you know, do this, this quiz or, you know, read this, uh, read this prompt and do this discussion post, the adaptive learning courseware is going to have, um, you know, some, you, you can have gamified elements, but what it's going to do is it has sort of like a bank of different questions that are, you know, related to the, to the learning outcome. Uh, and depending on how the student performs right it's gonna you know maybe move them up higher or, or move them slower uh you know through through the uh, uh the various bank and um so that's that's uh that's the adaptive learning courseware and then you know moving moving forward um which which you know is, is not really in play uh, so much quite yet would be like some of the social emotional uh feedback wearables uh and then and other stuff but you know right now you know if what you would see in a typical classroom would be an lms on a, on a whatever particular hardware device and uh maybe some adaptive learning uh courseware all right i wanted to touch on a group that doesn't get nearly as much attention as it should they're called the american legislative executive council or alec for short. I addressed this outfit briefly with the great James Scaminacci last year when we talked about the history of the Oath Keepers and like organizations. In that context, we focused primarily on the epic role Alec has played to push federal lands, especially in Western states. And it's pretty incredible stuff, uh, you know, uh, especially in the context of some of the things with Clive and Bundy. And uh, as an interesting side note to that, um, sort of show how weird all of this stuff really gets. Um, one of the ongoing spokesmen and major proponents of Alex's agenda was uh, Mike Leavitt, the governor of uh, Utah from 1993 to 2003, and later the uh, head of the EPA, or was the EPA, um, oh, it may not have been, it was one of those, but then later the Department of Health and Human Services, I'm certain of that. Uh, but anyway, uh, Leavitt is uh, the brother of David Leavitt, the guy who is uh, currently being accused of a cannibalism and satanic ritual abuse in Utah. So, um, yeah, this is one of the guys that's, uh, you know, been a big asset of Alec over the years. And oh, by the way, Cliven Bundy is also a family member of the Leavitts, along with a lot of other interesting people. Again, I've got some stuff on the Patreon about that that a lot of people I think will find interesting. But um. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And again, just keep in mind, folks, these are just the kind of characters Alec has been using in the state of freaking Utah. So you can imagine when I saw that they were also involved in education, I thought, oh, my God, how freaking terrible could this possibly be? Um, so, Jake, why don't you bring us up to speed on that? Yeah, you're, you're right. They, they don't get enough uh, attention. And, you know, uh, I can anecdotally speak to that because, you know, this is a this is 
part of my book that uh, most doesn't get brought up a lot in interviews. And so I, I you know, I got some notes here to sort of refresh my own memory because I, I wrote that chapter. It was one of the pre-published um, chapters. I wrote it basically as an article. Uh, well, it was maybe 2017, 2018. Um, so, so let's see. So basically what you have is sort of this, um, a lot of conflicts of interest between Alec, um, K-12 Inc., and Connections Academy, those two uh, virtual charter schools that I mentioned, uh, several politicians, legislators, governors, and then also Secretary DeVos. Okay, so uh, let's go through some of the particulars on that. So, um, so Alec was super influential in um, popularizing or propagating um the, the uh, virtual schools and the, and the virtual charter school industry through something called the virtual public schools act so one of the things that they do generally is like they, they write boilerplate legislation uh that can be used to push for privatization initiatives in various sectors of the economy uh and here right they wrote this boilerplate legislation the virtual public schools act uh, and then and disseminated it to various states in order to get them to pass laws that would uh, authorize uh, virtual schools um, and, you know, uh, the, all the, the courseware and stuff that eventually comes along with it. So the Virtual Public Schools Act is actually derived from uh, these, these 10 elements that came out of Jeb Bush's Digital Learning Council. Um, and in the Virtual Public Schools Act, the language uh, describes that virtual public schools should be designed to uh, facilitate, quote, personalized learning. So that's your uh, competency-based stuff. And then they literally say uh, that it would track, pro uh, quote, progress based on demonstrated competency, unquote. Okay, so it's basically not just setting up legislation to make it legal to have you know online schools but that the online schools should be using a competency-based platform uh which i've demonstrated is is integral to adaptive learning uh data mining and, and conditioning uh so on the alec education task force uh you had two corporate members and those just happened to be k-12 inc and connections academy uh, also on the uh, Alec Education Tax Force was Texas Senator Florence Shapiro, uh, and she passed legislation that mandated virtual public schools to receive the same amount of tax funding as brick and mortar public schools. Uh, then you also have on the task force Tom Bolvin, and he worked for K-12 Inc. He was actually the private chair of the Alec Education Tax Force. Then you also have Mickey Revenaugh, who was the co-chair of the task force. And uh, he also happened to be executive vice president of Connections Education, which is the parent company for Connections Academy. Now, he helped draft the Virtual Public Schools Act, uh, and a couple people that helped him do that, one guy is Brian Flood, worked for K-12 Inc., and then a guy named Don Lee, who would later move on to become a lobbyist as vice president for government affairs at K-12 Inc., okay? So basically, the whole... Uh, the whole education task force at ALEC is crawling with uh, people that work in the uh, corporate virtual charter school industry. So they draft this virtual public schools act and then they farm it out to uh, several politicians across the country. A couple uh, of note uh, should be, let's see, Wisconsin State Representative Robin Voss 
and she was the Wisconsin State Chair of ALEC, uh, and she mandated that virtual public schools receive the same amount of tax funding. It's brick and mortar public schools as well, okay? Vir Virginia Governor Bob McDonald requested that the uh, Virginia State Legislature introduce a 2020 law model on ALEC's Virtual Public Schools Act. Uh, the governor's request was prompted after he received campaign donations amounting to tens of thousands of dollars from lobbyists representing K-12 Inc. And then you have DeVos. DeVos, um, well, she was the chair of something called the American Federation for Children, uh, which has put lots of money into charter schools and virtual charter schools in particular. Uh, she also funded K-12 Inc. Uh, and then she spoke at ALEC headquarters while she was Secretary of Education. And she, during that speech at ALEC headquarters, she promoted uh, partnerships, uh, you know, between ALEC and the Department of Ed. And she wanted to advance, quote, personalized learning through various forms of school choice, in particular virtual charter schools. Now, we should also note that the AFC, that's the American Federation of Children, that's this school choice nonprofit that DeVos funds, uh, it, it was sponsored by K-12 Inc. and Connections Academy. And then it, AFC, also had a director level and a trustee level sponsorship of ALEC. And then on the founding board of the AFC was this guy, uh, Kevin Chavis, and Kevin Chavis uh, was involved with the uh, Digital Learning Council that, that Bush uh, set up to, uh, that, that basically set the stage for or laid the framework for the Virtual Public Schools Act. So between DeVos and these virtual charter schools and ALEC uh, and these politicians, right, you just sort of have a, a, you know, lots of conflict of interest there. Yeah, well, <clears throat> certainly seems like conflict of interest is a reoccurring uh, theme throughout a lot of uh, Alex's uh, endeavors. <laughs> uh, all right, so let's go back to something known as Project Best, which kind of seems like uh, the basis for a lot of this insanity in terms of the Dana binding of children. Uh, can you explain that for the listeners, please, sir? Yeah, so for uh, for people that uh, maybe aren't familiar with Project Best or uh, with the, the person who leaked it, and that is uh, Charlotte Thompson Iserby. Maybe I should give just a little backstory on on her, uh, how she sort of uh, influenced my book, and then you know how she uh, came to leak Project Best. So uh, Charlotte Thompson Iserby, um, she worked for the Department of Education under the, the Ronald Reagan administration. She wrote a book called The Deliberate Dumbing Down of America. It's about 700 pages long. Um, and she also, uh, you know, her dad and her grandfather were in the Order of Skull and Bones, and, and she's the one who leaked uh, the physical address books. And actually, she passed away uh, February this year. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I actually was there with her when that happened. I went and stayed with her and helped take care of her. Uh, and we were really, really good friends. Uh, you know, um, I, my book sort of started off, I wrote it, uh, the first chapter, which was just an article, and she reached out to me, sort of encouraged me to, you know, keep building on it, and uh, the reason why I even wrote it was because all the stuff that we're talking about right now, right, so the, the ed tech stuff, the public-private partnerships, uh, changing academics to workforce training, school choice, you know, that was, this was all buzzwords that I'd heard her talk about, and, uh, you know, when I was, there was a time, uh, it was probably 2016-ish, something like that, when uh, in Illinois, we had somebody by the name of Bruce Rauner was the governor, and he was stalling on the budget, and uh, I saw that as a ploy to 
uh, create a situation where public institutions had to go into private receivership. And, you know, Rauner himself was uh, heavily invested in uh, charter schools. And, you know, he'd always use these buzzwords, cradle to career, which is a workforce training. Uh, and so sort of, I, I, you know, one of the departments I was working in actually had to be shut down because of it. And uh, so that was why I wrote the first article. And, you know, she's, uh, you know, became a close friend of mine. And uh, I actually had Project Best now because uh, through the years, I, at one point I spent 30 days with her, uh, you know, sort of helping around the, around the house and, you know, just hanging out. And uh, she gave me all of her books and all of her files. And I counted, I was bored the other day. I counted all the books. I have over a thousand books she gave me and, uh, you know, even more files. So uh, Project Best, uh, which is, you know, a big part of my uh, my book, uh, historically, it was, it's, it's basically, it's called uh, Basic Education Skills Through Technology. And by the way, if you want to read Project Best, you can, you can get a copy of it on my uh, database uh, on my website. Um, and basically what it was designed to do is replace academics with workforce training uh, that would be facilitated by public-private partnerships between schools and technology corporations that would condition student learning outcomes through computers that would be programmed with Skinnerian operant conditioning algorithms. So everything that we just talked about was basically laid out in Project Best. Uh, and it was, uh, it was initiated, it was launched by uh, the Secretary of Education at the time, T.H. Bell, okay? And then uh, he handed it off to Bill Bennett. Now at this point, uh, it sort of morphed into something called Project Slate and then other, other iterations. Uh, but Bill Bennett, okay, who basically takes up the legacy of Project Best, he is the guy that set up K-12 Inc., which again was funded by DeVos. And Bill Bennett's speechwriter was Peter Thiel. And Peter Thiel is invested in adaptive learning courseware, in particular, Clever and Newton. Okay, and so, you know, going back to Project Best, you have the Department of Education, uh, you, know, based, you know, in other words, the government, you have the early versions of the corporate charter school industry. Uh, and then now, you know, with the development of adaptive learning corporate, which is the Skinner box technology, uh, you know, all the key players involved uh, going all the way back to, it was 1981 that uh, Charlotte leaked it. Okay. And actually there, there's, uh, I, I wrote some, some articles recently uh, based on the files that Charlotte gave me uh, sort of looking deeper into the history of project best and sort of how it's, uh, laid some of the groundwork, not just for the virtual charter school industry, but, you know, this, this thing that we now call the fourth industrial revolution more broadly. Uh, and what I discovered was a couple of things. So the first is that not only were, you know, was it a, uh, basically a public private partnership between, you know, ed education technology companies, uh, and the federal government, uh, but it was also, uh, promoted or it was, uh, launched with efforts from the National Education Association, which is the largest teachers union in the United States, might even be the largest union period in the United States. Uh, they had, uh, uh, they used to have a, a branch called, or division of the NEA that was called the Department of Audiovisual Instruction. So this was before they had, you know, uh, the, the era of the, the modern computer. Uh, and actually, so they were, specialized in you know, uh, 
developing and, and uh, disseminating, uh, I guess, what you would call early versions of education technology that, that were solely uh, revolved around audiovisual stuff. So in other words, like, you know, uh, movies and cassette tapes, right? So, you know, any, any sort of educational materials. Um, actually, if you, if you look through some of my files on Project Best, you'll see that the, the learning channel, right, had some, uh, some overlapping partnerships with uh, some of the contractors involved with Project Best. Uh, and actually, it, you know, it was um, Edison, uh, he, he, uh, he thought that he was going to replace textbooks with with AV, with audiovisual stuff. He thought he was, you know, with film reels and cassettes and things, records and stuff, he, he thought he was going to replace uh, the paper textbook, okay? Sort of, sort of like the modern, you know, digital computer industry believes it's going to replace the textbook with, you know, adaptive coursework and stuff. And they're, they're actually getting a lot closer than Edison ever, ever got. But, but the Department of Audiovisual Instruction was actually uh, later became something called the Association for Educational Communications and Technology, the AECT. And that was the main contractor for Project Best. Now, technically the AECT is, sort of, is, is its own thing now, but if you look at the history of it and you, and you read my article, NEA World Order, uh, and I've got some of the documents that Charlie gave me, the contract is filed with the AECT. But when, uh, it was Susan Phillips, who was the wife of Howard Phillips, who ran the Conservative Caucus. Uh, she, when she requested information on the contract, they basically said, we don't have, we, we don't know, we can't find the file. And because it was also filed as uh, contracted with the Department of Audiovisual Instruction, DAVI or DAVI. Okay, and then when you look at the, uh, when she inquired further, uh, Davey basically became the AECT in the late 70s, uh, and it kept an office at the NEA until almost the 1980s, um, and then there was still, uh, according to the person she discussed with, what he said was uh, uh, basically a quote here is, you know, close coordination between the AEC in the NEA. Okay. So, you know, it's, it's, it's foggy, uh, but you know, the, it looked, the AECT being the, the main contractor still had some very close connections uh, to the NEA. And the whole reason why they changed their name to the AECT was uh, again, sort of because they're moving out of the, uh, the world of, you know, audiovisual tech and then moving into, you know, the, the modern, computer era or the information age. And that's where I also found uh, a series of documents that was given to her uh, by uh, a guy named uh, Lawrence P. Grayson. And he was, he worked in the, the Department of Education under the Assistant Secretary of Ed, Donald Sinise. And uh, he was the, uh, uh, Grayson was the liaison with UNESCO. And the file that he gave her was something called Study 11. And it's called New Technologies in Education. And I have the entire study on my, uh, on my database if you want to see the various files. Um, and basically what this was, uh, in looking at it, it was a partnership uh, between uh, a Western capitalist nations, but also various Eastern Bloc communist and socialist nations, uh, and also in partnership with large technology corporations, uh, including Microsoft, Apple, 
and IBM. And what they were sort of doing was laying the groundwork for uh, the, the early uh, computer era in ed tech. And so if you look at, and this is UNESCO study 11 is, is right at the same time as Project BEST. So you can see Project BEST is basically the domestic version of the global program that was pushed through, uh, through UNESCO study 11. Uh, and so, you know, that's, that's a, that's something that's not in my book that I, that I recently uncovered, but, you know, basically what they were doing was setting up the infrastructure, uh, for this fourth industrial revolution or what at the time they called was the information revolution. And basically what they were doing it also in partnership with the, uh, the OECD was, uh, standardizing courseware exchanges uh, and the main way that they they had to do that was through the multinational corporation right so in other words you needed the multinational company to basically sort of uh, to traverse the various lines on the map to basically uh, disseminate uh, a more or less standardized uh, version of ed tech across both the, the Western capitalist nations and some of the Eastern Bloc uh, Soviet nations. Yeah, and that's fascinating in terms of a lot of the stuff that was going on in the Cold War in the broader context. I mean, of course, also um, like the era of perestroika as well, which had been um, pushed uh, essentially by the KGB. Uh, and again, there's a lot of interesting stories about uh, some of the things that were going on within the KGB during the late 1970s that led to that whole state of affairs. Uh, I mean, this is kind of the milieu Robert Maxwell really uh, rose to the height of his power in during the 1980s and um, uh, getting are penetrating i mean a lot of these uh eastern bloc nations and this means was like a major effort uh by the uh, western intelligence services partly i mean i suspect because of the data mining component i mean this is also the whole era of promise and the early back doors and this kind of stuff i mean this is a fantastic way to accumulate data on uh, potential enemy populations so that you can do predictive models of their behavior and all this other kind of stuff and also too, it was a way to lead to corruption in many of the Eastern Bloc uh, countries through contracts and so forth, which would make them more pliable. So, pardon you me. know, there's a, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, no, you're fine. I was uh, pretty much finished there. So go ahead, sir. I was just going to, you know, you mentioned Robert Maxwell, and I, I had to say this because, you know, sometimes when I'm, you know, sort of weighted down with too much heavy and usually dark research, uh, you know, I'll watch these documentaries on the history of video games. I used to play a lot of video games when I was a kid. And so it's like the history of like the games I used to play. And I watched one on the history of Tetris and Robert Maxwell basically brokered that deal because, right, it was a Russian game. You know, if you remember, it's got the Russian music and the graphics, right, the, the Russian architecture. Uh, and he, he brokered the deal to get... Um, get that with you know that russian video game and to get it licensed into the west and i you know I, it's noteworthy to me because 
you know, when you look at some of the uh, the journals that were given to Charlotte by Lawrence P. Grayson, this was the THE journal, so it's Technological Horizons in Education. Uh, if you just look at the artwork on a lot of it, right, it's usually like, it's like a globe with a computer in the middle of it, or like a globe that is a computer and a disc going into it. Or there's one where there's like this astronaut out on a space station with a globe underneath them, and there's this string of flags, and the two flags in the middle is America and Soviet Union. Uh, and when you look inside these, um, when you look inside the, the, uh, these journals, what you see is uh, you see advertisements for the AECT, which was contracting the project best. And you also see some of the white papers of the original UNESCO study 11 documents. So, so each country that was in this program did its own sort of national report on you know what type of software they were using you know back then they had the you know the play-doh and the basic and the and the logo uh and then you know which companies were they using to facilitate it you know microsoft ibm apple uh and then they would bring their 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 national white papers and they'd sort of you know send them back to to this you know group consortium and some of those white papers are republished in the journals right so basically you see like this you know, Project Best, UNESCO Study 11 stuff in these journals, but then there's also a lot of ads, you know, this is the, this was the early popularization of the PC, and, you know, at first it was largely like, you know, the only people that really bought computers were like, you know, business people, accountants, you know, people that had some sort of a, you know, a business use for it, uh, so, the way that they, but the way, if you wanted to get a computer in everybody's home in order to popularize it and naturalize it in a way that you could yeah, then move on to, kids. yeah, video games, right? And then, you know, and so what better way than to put, you know, not just video, not just popularize it through the video games, but, you know, let's also put, you know, sort of this, you know, one world type sort of, you know, propaganda in it, right? So, you know, sort of, uh, uh, you know, smooching over, you know, international relations with the Soviets through the through the Tetris game. And then and Robert Maxwell just happened to be the guy that brokered that. So I just, you know, I think that's an interesting uh, connection. Yeah, well, I mean, Maxwell was the major liaisons with like the Soviet scientific community. Of course, he had pretty much a monopoly on the um, the publishing rights for all the, the Soviet scientific journals from like the mid fifties all the way up, I think until like the early eighties or something like that. Um, so that's not really surprising to me. I mean, he was really the gateway to a lot of Soviet scientific research for many years and get another kind of aspect of his power. And I suspect why, you know, <clears throat> you saw Epstein later turn up and, uh, you know, so many of these uh, kind of transhumanist circles and what have you, there had been that uh, that long-standing connection to Maxwell and I mean the scientific community and his broader family for many, many, many years. Uh, but I don't want to get us too far sidetracked yeah. here. So, um, but yeah, okay. So um, uh, let's see. So before we go further, let's uh, briefly tackle the ongoing debate over IQ and genetics. We talked a bit about this earlier, but a lot of prominent individuals over the years have invested a lot of time and money improving a link. So can you give us a quick rundown of that? Yeah. So um, we're basically talking, you know, to really give you a good overview, we, we, we got to trace it back to, uh, as we mentioned, Galton and basically eugenics, right? And so uh, eugenics, can be broken into two categories and uh one is race hygiene the other is mental hygiene so race hygiene had everything to do with uh basically you know your your ethnic uh heritability right and so uh associating you know various 
you know, proclivities, whether uh, physical or social to somebody's uh, ethnic heritage. But then there's also mental hygiene, which was often correlated with the race hygiene, but uh, it, it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, sort of an either or, right? And so the mental hygiene was largely like IQ stuff, but, you know, it was also looking at other uh, different types of you know, psychological or psychiatric disorders, okay? And um, so so Galton basically, you know, he, he comes up with the idea of eugenics, basically uh, his cousin was Charles Darwin. So basically takes this idea of evolution and says, well, we can control it uh, if we, you know, through, through biological selection, uh, through what, you know, which is what they called quote unquote positive eugenics, right? And that's sort of where the, the, uh, the elites, uh, the, the aristocracy sort of inter, interbreed with each other. And then there's negative eugenics, which is where you prevent, you know, the so-called unfit from reproducing. And you do that through sterilization, euthanasia, abortion, et cetera. Um, and, you know, so you take that concept and uh, sort of gets popularized in the United States. And it really picks up steam in the United States with a lot of corporate funding from the Rockefeller Foundation, Carnegie Institute, et cetera. Uh, and then, you know, institutions like Rockefeller Foundation you know, would eventually also fund you know, Kaiser Wilhelm Institute for Anthropology, Human Heredity and Eugenics. So basically, you know, that American corporate funding based on the, you know, Galtonian uh, English eugenic science would then, you know, also that money would get funneled over to Nazi eugenics, right? But, you know, sort of in between, uh, you know, as, as it's getting popularized in the United States, um, the, the uh, Simon Binet IQ test was largely... Uh, you know, was used for eugenic uh, uh, justification. And, you know, one, one institution in particular would be like H.H. Uh, Goddard's Violin School for what they call, quote, the feeble-minded, right? And it was basically, you know, at this point, IQ tests, um, you know, you had your, you, and there's still, the, the, the metrics are basically still sort of scaled in the same way. And so average is 100, which means that's like the mean, Okay, and then you, every 10 points up or down is what they call a standard deviation, which basically means you're a year above or a year behind where you should be for your age. Uh, and, you know, the, the way that they uh, categorized it back then was, you know, white people or European people, uh, it was basically the mean at 100, and then black and brown people would be lesser going to in this, the smaller numbers, and then uh, Ashkenazi Jews and Asians uh, would be, you know, our, our, our uh, categorized standard deviation above that 100 mean. Um, and, you know, that at the time, you had terms like idiot, moron, imbecile. These were like, quote unquote, scientific terms, right? They like, each of those refers to a standard deviation below the 100 mean, okay? So uh, those, those were like used to, if you were a moron or an imbecile, uh, you would be, uh, you know, uh, categorized for uh, eugenic sterilization. And actually, uh, you know, who's the woman? Uh, Carrie Buck, right? And I think hers was actually, she was sterilized because uh, I think they said she was promiscuous. I think she might've had a, a baby out of wedlock, but the, the ruling uh, by Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. when it went to Supreme Court and they said that, yeah, that's legit to sterilize people compulsorily. Uh, he said uh, in his decision, his opinion says, quote, uh, three generations of imbeciles is enough. OK. And, you know, uh, you move forward to the 80s, you know, you get past the um, 
you get past the horrors of the concentration camps uh, and, you know, eugenics becomes sort of a four letter word and, you know, the American Eugenics Society becomes a society for social biology, uh, eugenics quarterly becomes social biology. Uh, the British Eugenic Society becomes the Galton Institute, okay, but they changed their names, but, you know, the theories still stick around, and actually, if you look at a book like The Bell Curve, uh, they sort of combine, again, the race hygiene and the mental hygiene, because in The Bell Curve, Murray, uh, he is using, if you look at the numbers, and you, and you studied the old eugenic literature like I have, you know, and, and just a good cursory overview of it, I mean, I've looked at the primary sources in the college when I was there, was actually the the first, I guess, so-called rabbit hole that sort of put me on this, this type of research uh, was when I discovered eugenics, hadn't heard about it uh, all the way, almost till I had graduated college, couldn't understand why I hear about racial justice every day in my classroom, but nobody ever wanted to talk about eugenics. Uh, so I would dig up the old books. And if you, you look at those, uh, you look at those, those uh, scores, like I said, you can get a nice overview in uh, Edwin Black's uh, War Against the Week. They're basically identical to what Murray calculates. I guess Murray would say that means that the, the numbers are accurate, but um, you know, what I, the, the scale that I sort of uh, laid out for you, hundred being the mean, and that's basically, you know, white people or European people. And then, uh, you know, going uh, smaller numbers with black and brown people. And then, you know, Ashkenazi Jews and Asians going up, that's same scale, same numbers. Uh, and the interesting thing about it is that Charles Murray, who, uh, you know, you know, Bilderberg attendee. Uh, he's a big advocate of, you know, school shouldn't be for everybody, or at least college shouldn't be for everybody. And that for those people that can't, you know, based on their IQ and other metrics, uh, they should be funneled into vocational ed. And he feels the best way to do that or the most cost efficient way to do that is through online schooling, right? Because, you know, Murray's always, you know, you know, I forget that book that he wrote, but it was about the welfare state, right? And he's always looking, you know, these cost-effective ways to sort of manage uh, behavioral genetics. Uh, but if you also look at the, um, the people that he cites in the bell curve, it's sort of a list of sort of, you know, modern day crypto eugenicists. And some of them might, would, would, would just outright use the word uh, term eugenics. And then in scholarly literature, some of them are referred to as eugenicists or their research as eugenic. Uh, and so some of these people include uh, Linda Gottfriedson, uh, Arthur Jensen, Richard Lynn, James Flynn, Felipe J. Rushton, and then a guy named Robert Plomin. Um, and a lot of these people, uh, they were part of something called the Pioneer Fund, which was this nonprofit foundation that uh, promoted these eugenic theories. Yeah, it was a fascinating group with Cleef Preston Draper um, and then also William Shockley. He was another, I don't know if he was cited in it, but he was another one of the big guys that was funded by Pioneer. And um, it's interesting to point out too for everyone that like a lot of this, you know, whole milieu was based out of um, uh, the San Francisco area specific camps spread between Stanford and Berkeley. Well, Jensen was at Berkeley, but um, what the Bell Curve guys and uh, Shockley and um, a couple of these other folks, I think, were at Stanford, right, along with like Peter Thiel and um, a lot of the other individuals who have embraced this kind of thinking over the years. Yes. Yeah. Shockley is, is referred to as sort of like a proto founding father of Silicon Valley. 
yeah exactly he was uh, the one uh, who had helped set up what was it fairchild semiconductors or well shockley semiconductors i think and then they had the treacherous nine or whatever that set up the fairfield thing but yeah he was one of the early fathers of it it was uh, he's generally credited as the uh the man who uh disc- or created the uh what was it the um uh, the transistor what yeah. Was it? yeah so yeah but obviously there's some debate about that but obviously the second part of his life was mostly uh centered around um uh trying to prove uh basically iq differences between different races and uh, also to set up a uh, sperm bank where uh the semen <laughs> of uh the brilliant could be preserved for posterity yeah. your repository for germinal choice yeah mm. yeah mm. and some of the some of these characters also uh were on the uh editorial board of the journal that's uh the title of the journal is intelligence uh, and one of them in particular is Robert Plaman, who is one of the proponents of something called uh, pre- precision education, which, uh, you know, that's that's sort of a, sort of the, the ed tech or the, or the big data iteration of how you correlate IQ scores with genetics and then therefore uh, tailor or personalize the learning based based on that. And, and, you know, and then, and then there's other, you know, I mean, this, this whole theory, right. I mean, Charles Murray's not too, too popular nowadays, but, you know, uh, there's people like Sam Harris, right. And, uh, you know, Stefan Molyneux and, you know, even Jordan Peterson kind of, uh, uh, sort of promotes the whole IQ thing in, in, in terms of, uh, you know, it's, it's correlations with, with race, uh, you know, and, and I'm not saying that any of those guys are, you know, avowed eugenicist or anything like that but i mean my, my thing is you know once you start correlating genes with intelligence and then you start using that to make policy i mean you don't i don't care if you call yourself a eugenicist or not i mean that's where it's going to go one way or another right and you know it, you know when it, it, maybe we'll dive into uh, the whole 23 and me thing but when you look at sort of how they uh you know, how, how strong is the correlation between a particular DNA sequence and IQ? It's nothing like hair color or, you know, eye color or skin tone or anything like that. It's, it's, it's the correlation is not super strong. So, you know, then it begs the question, you know, not just if we, if we want to, you know, make these, you know, gene IQ correlations and then make policy based on it, like where that's necessarily going to go, but like, is it even accurate to begin with? You know, and so. Yeah, and uh, just one final thing I want to point out too before we move on, but just again, just how important the ideology of Galton is to all of this. Um, he was the guy who really uh, gave us kind of the precursor to the concepts of the intelligence tests. He was the father of eugenics. Uh, another thing, though, that I haven't, or that I don't think we've mentioned yet, but he was also kind of the grandfather of the personality tests, too, that are such a big part of this. And he was also one of the, uh, I believe, early individuals to theorize uh, what would later become the science of genetics as well. So, yeah, yeah, he, he's, you know, he set the ball rolling with, with biometrics as well, right, Carl? Pearson. I think so. Yeah, I mean, yeah. he's pretty much like where I mean, almost all of the stuff we're kind of talking about here originated from. I mean, it's, you don't hear about God. He's another one of these figures. You just don't hear enough about Galton. But Galton is so important to all this. I mean, I really think there's a legitimate cult around Galton and his ideology in a lot of these circles, frankly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, there's a, there a popular academic... Uh, Duckworth. Is it Angela Duckworth? Uh, 
And she does this whole thing. She's largely emphasizes the socio-emotional learning uh, acronym cell. Uh, and like she, you know, she pushes these ideas of what she calls like grit, right? Like it's, it's, it's some sort of psychometric uh, effective factor that's supposed to, you know, it's, it's not an IQ uh, factor. It's, it's some other sort of effective or emotional factor that enables the student to, you know, push through, persevere, and, and achieve. But she she gave I don't know if it was a TED talk, but she, it was a it was a big conference, and she starts it off with a quote from Galton. And if you read her papers, uh, she did one with a guy named Heckman uh, out of the uh, University of Chicago, uh, and she pushes her idea of grit and social emotional learning and how we need to you know uh, emphasize you know the emotional aspects of learning, but a ton of that paper focuses on IQ. So it's like for her, it's a dial, it's a dialectic between, you know, IQ metrics and social emotional uh, learning metrics as well. And, you know, the reason I, I mentioned her and bring her up is, you know, to go back to that, you know, when, why I even found it so fascinating to look into eugenics when I discovered it, you know, being in academia where you don't hear about, you know, you don't hear them talk about Galton or eugenics, right? Uh, they don't mention it at all. Uh, they certainly don't mention it in a bad way, but at the same time, they talk about racial justice. And it's like, you know, the way I, what I surmised from it, and, you know, the more I do the research uh, and using, using Duckworth sort of as an example, uh, it's that, you know, they might, you know, have more of an inclusive idea about uh, you know, how to include, you know, the various ethnicities of the planet into this, you know, whatever utopia they have in mind, but they really like the ideas of, you know, eugenics, they like the ideas of Galton, you know, and, and uh, I guess they just want to be a little more, uh, you know, they want to spread it around to everybody. Yeah, because we realize now that Asians and Jews are really smart, Jake, so we're more inclusive now, they, they pass, you know, genetic uh, muster, you know, so it's a step in the right direction of racial equality and all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. And if they look at, you know, and the way they want to look at these metrics is, you know, we're going to be really precise precision education, right? So we're not just going to say, Oh, you know, you're black. Yeah, so we'll have the exact education profile to try to lift up the, uh, the, uh, the races with the IQs. They're a little below the, the snuff. Right. So yeah, 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 yeah. It's, um, it's, it's really progressive. Well, that's what that bell curve models, right? It's like a bunch of them are here in this, the thick part of the bell, but like, you know, we're not, now they're not going to leave out the people on the, on the high end, right? They're going to take all those high, whatever ethnicity you're from on that, on that high end of that bell curve uh, scale, you know, they're all going to have a seat at the, uh, at the manager's table. Yeah, absolutely. It's progress. It's a finest form, I suppose. <laughs> All right, all right, all right. Let's get into this twenty-three and Me stuff here, and how it's kind of subtly crept into this uh, research. Yeah, so uh, this is where they sort of refine their uh, their their eugenic or DNA IQ metrics, and you know, as I had sort of alluded to already, uh, you know, it's you know, genetics. Are, are there, there, it's a study of correlations, okay? Now, if the correlation is really high, right? If you start getting into the 90%, you, you can pretty much say causal, right? You know, there might be some outliers, but you can pretty much say causal. 
Um, but, you know, and, and you can predict that stuff pretty accurately when it comes to, you know, basic phenotypical stuff like, you know, skin color, eye color, hair color, you know, Mendel was able to do it pretty accurately just with, you know, the pun, the pun at squares that you, you know, you might've learned in grade school, you know, where you got the two, two genes and the, the squares and you, what's the ratio at which the dominant and recessive genes are going to, uh, you know, reproduce at the, in the next generation. Uh, you know, but when you start getting into like social categories, social behaviors and things like that, you know, things like IQ, uh, things that don't have a direct physical phenotypic expression, uh, the percentages go way down. And uh, so the, the more, you know, to make the statistics more accurate, you need a broader sample, right? So if I have 100 people that I'm studying, and they're going to represent you know, the, how was it now? Eight, eight billion now, seven, eight billion people on the planet, right? It's tiny, right? If I, the closer I can get to the eight billion, the more accurate that statistical representation is. So through a company like 23andMe, you know, everybody goes and we want everybody to uh, find what's your lineage, you know, what's your heritage, you send in your, your, your little spittle and they're going to do a DNA sequence and they'll tell you, you know, where all your ancestors come from. Uh, and the more people that do that, the broader that database gets. And so when they start to correlate particular DNA sequences with various, um, you know, phenotypic expressions or social behaviors, then, you know, they can, they can refine that. And I guess they can say that it's uh, cl more closer to causal than it is just, you know, maybe some loose correlation. And, you know, if, if you're not aware of it, when you go to 23andMe and you give them your DNA uh, and you submit it, there's a box that you check or you can check. And, and it asks, can we use this to do other research with, right? Not just to track your, your uh, ethnic uh, heritage and some of the research they do. Uh, some of it's for medical stuff, you know, what's the correlation between different, uh, you know, DNA sequences and, you know, allergies and stuff like that. But one of the studies they do has to do with correlations between particular uh, DNA sequences and, IQ. Uh, and I pulled out uh, my, my book here to refresh my memory on the numbers, uh, just to sort of illustrate what I had sort of uh, suggested about you know, how accurate are these correlations when it comes to genes and intelligence. Uh, so there's one blog post, this is on the 23andMe website. So they have a, a little blog where I guess they, um, you know, promote uh, some of the research they're doing with these um, with these samples that they get. And this, the title of this one is 10% inspiration, 90% perspiration, and 60% genetics. And this article is about the correlation between DNA and IQ. So here they're saying at most 60% of it is genetics. Okay. Um, and the way that they, uh, they, they calculate this it has to do with some loose association between a particular, uh, uh, it's, it's SNP, it's a SNP. Uh, it's basically just, a, it's a meaningful sort of segment of a DNA sequence that they can associate uh, with something. They, they calculate it with what they call, quote, edu, edu years. Okay, and then, and then uh, in another one, there's another blog article where uh, the title is Back to School Smarts and Genetics. And in this one, um, they say that, I'll just read it. It says, as for measures of intelligent, recent studies estimate that in early childhood, about 25 to 40% of individual variation 
immeasurable intelligence can be attributed to genetics. And then it says in adults, this number increases to 80%. Okay. But right. So you're talking about a range from, I mean, they've got, they're giving you this, you know, 23 Me itself is giving you a range from 25 to 80% uh, and then 40 and 60 sort of in the middle. Uh, and, you know, depending on your, your age. Um, and then they also say here that it's not just, you know, it's not a sort of a one-to-one -one ratio, right? They're actually looking, when they come up with these percentages, they're, they're, uh, they're looking at correlations between multiple genes, okay? And so it says here uh, in this same, uh, the Back to School Smarts and Genetics article, it says it's almost, or it's also important to note that there is no single gene that has an inordinate impact on IQ scores. Instead, there are hundreds of genes that impact intelligence with a cumulative impact on IQ scores. Okay, so you know you're talking about this a very wide range of you know statistical correlations with hundreds of genes. I mean that doesn't seem like a very accurate measurement to me. But based on that, and you know again, the more people they get to submit their their DNA samples, I guess the more accurate those percentages will come down. Maybe they think they'll be able to narrow it down to you know a, a, hand, a, a smaller range of genes and a, and a tighter range in terms of statistical correlation. But based on that data, they want to use that stuff for something called precision education again, which is, uh, uh, well, it's, it's, you know, one of the main proponents of it is that guy I mentioned who was cited in the bell curve. His name is Robert Plomman. He's also, uh, he might not be at now. I mean, I wrote this a while ago. So, but he, last I checked, he was still on the editorial board of the journal titled Intelligence. And basically he wants to have, he wants you to have a, uh, what he calls a learning chip. I don't know quite what that means. I don't think it's a brain computer interface. I think it's just some sort of a digital record that somehow keeps track of, you know, your, your, uh, your genetic IQ propensity. And based on that, that's the baseline for what adaptive learning courseware modules you'll be able to use, right? So, you know, if your IQ says, your IQ metrics say, well, you know, you know, this says you can only go so far with your intelligence. Like we're not even going to bother to give you the, the adaptive learning course where they could potentially track you into honors class. Cause that's, that's a waste of time and money. We know that you can only go this far already. So we're going to sort of start you off maybe on the vocational route. And that's sort of how, uh, you know, these, these 23 and me style metrics uh, tie into bell curve IQ eugenic scoring and how that relates to precision education. Yeah, it's just incredible. I mean, how much of this stuff is really starting to target us now at a genetic level. And I mean, as an aspect of this, a lot of people just do not realize. I mean, this is, um, I think another, you know, component of the COVID lockdowns has been so overlooked is, I mean, once again, this is giving uh, authorities access, or should, more accurately, private companies like, again, Palantir access to just incredible amounts of medical data. And I mean, all of this stuff is crucial to, you know, compiling accurate uh, personality profiles and all this other kind of stuff, predictive models. I mean, you can do a lot with data that you mine from, you know, uh, standardized tests or social media, but uh, medical data is even more noteworthy. And then obviously the next step, which I'm sure we'll probably get into is uh, the neuroscience component. Um, but anyway, uh, let's talk some psychometrics uh, for a moment. I know you used the term earlier. I'm familiar with it, but probably not a lot of people listening to this are. So give us the rundown of that. Yeah, so, I mean, psychometrics, uh, basically, you know, it's, it's 
it's, it's just correlating, uh, you know, your propensity for particular social behaviors uh, based on, you know, particular metrics that they can data mine from some of the technologies that we, we talked about, okay? And sometimes, it, you know, kind of overlaps with biometrics uh, when you talk about behavioral genetics and things like that, but uh, sort of a, you know, a, a, a simplified overview of psychometrics that are data mined through ed tech. Uh, those would be, so you have your cognitive behavioral psychometrics, um, and then you have your social-emotional learning psychometrics. So the cognitive behavioral psychometrics are all of the various algorithms that they can data mine from the adaptive learning courseware based on the stimulus response algorithms. Okay, so basically, again, you have learning stimuli, and then the student has a response, uh, you know, the, they have a cognitive response and then you know usually uh especially if it's gamified or something like that there's a behavioral response remember that wilhelm went you know i used the the founding father of laboratory psychology at the time psychology was actually a subdiscipline of philosophy and the term psychology the root psyche actually referred to the soul well you know what was likely you know that's effectively a metaphysical thing that can't be measured uh so you know what we the only thing that we can measure about the the inner essence uh, or the, the, of the psyche is through the mind. And that's only, you know, we can't measure the thoughts either, but we can sort of infer them uh, or sort of steer them based on uh, metrics in terms of how the person behaves, right, in response to stimuli, okay? And so uh, a couple uh, very various adaptive learning courseware that uh, traffic in the cognitive behavioral, in other words, thinking algorithms or behaving algorithms. Uh, I think I mentioned two of them already, Clever and Newton, which are both funded by Peter Thiel. And you mentioned that he also runs Palantir, which specializes in predictive analytics for, uh, well, businesses, but also, right, I think he has government contracts uh, for intelligence purposes. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think he's, he's been in an ongoing uh, struggle with Raytheon for the privilege of uh, housing the uh, military. It's like, I can't remember if the army or the entire military's uh, data mining uh, software or so. Yeah, definitely uh, big in the defense world as well. Yeah, and you know, I just remembered, I forgot, I, I actually meant to mention this when I was doing the history of uh, Project Best and, and uh, you know, the ties between K-12 being DeVos and, and Bennett and, you know, Theo being the speechwriter of Bennett. Well, uh, there was also a FOIA request uh, that, that was found uh, during one of DeVos's early tours of the country. And what they found on her itinerary was she met at the home of Peter Thiel at one point. Now, you know, we don't know what they talked about because there's no record of it, but, you know, considering that she's, uh, you know, that she's the uh, secretary of education and that Thiel's invested in adaptive learning courseware. And he wrote, it was a speechwriter for the secretary of education, Bill Bennett, who set up K-12 Inc. I'm guessing they talked probably something about, you know, how to push the, uh, the adaptive learning courseware into the virtual schools. Okay, other other uh, other adaptive learning courseware would be Smart Sparrow. There's one called Nearpod. If my memory serves me, it's funded by uh, Mark Benioff or Salesforce, which is run by Mark Benioff. Okay, uh, then there's Dreambox, uh, and I should mention too that you know these. These cognitive behavioral algorithms that use the stimulus response method of, uh, you know, data mining. Uh, so they, they, they come out of that whole history of, you know, the BF Skinner and, and Thorndike and all those guys. 
uh, and they're largely used in terms of adaptive courseware for educational conditioning, but the same algorithms are used for behavioral advertising. And when Dreambox talks about uh, how they use, uh, how their adaptive learning courseware works, uh, how they, you know, the, the, in terms of the, psych, the cognitive behavioral psychometrics, they say not only that it goes, uh, it stems from Skinner, but it, it's literally the same stuff that Netflix, quote Netflix uses. Uh, to, to, you know, personalize your, your advertising. So, you know, there's a corporate element, again, you know, going back to this, the tie between the PPBS, the TQM, the outcomes-based education and the behavioral conditioning, okay? And so those, all that is basically psychometrics based on how the student thinks and how they behave, or again, how the consumer thinks and how the consumer behaves. And then you can tailor uh, successive educational modules and lessons based on those metrics, right? The students doing pretty good. Uh, you know, we can, we can up the ante or, you know, a person is, you know, clicking on an ad, uh, you know, product A or B. So, you know, we'll send them an ad for something similar. Uh, and then, you know, then there's, then there's the, the realm of socio-emotional biofeedback wearables. Um, and, you know, those are basically, um, those are data mining the, uh, the feeling algorithms, the emotional or the affective algorithms uh, of, the, of the students. All right. So uh, how is this being applied to genetics to produce educational algorithms or ed tech, as you refer to all of it? Is there more to add? I guess I should maybe ask from what you've already stated. Um, you know, I mean, I, I think I did kind of cover some, a lot of that in terms of, you know, the precision education and, you know, Robert Plumman's learning chip and all that and uh, looking at correlations between gene, gene sequences and IQ. But you can also look at, uh, you know, you might, you might point out that you can also look at DNA sequences and how they relate to learning disabilities uh, and then also potentially learning modalities or styles. So, you know, in uh, education, you know, you run through pedagogy. Oh, uh, they, they, you know, they, they, they uh, encourage you to uh, target all the different learning modalities, right? So visual, uh, auditory, kinesthetic. Uh, and so I guess you could, you could correlate, you know, DNA sequences to is a student visual learner, is, is he or she a auditory learner or kinesthetic learner, et cetera. I mean, it, it might be useful to point out here, you know, you mentioned, you know, sort of some of the new developments with, with the whole COVID era. And uh, you mentioned a lot of the data mining, predictive analytics, you know, I guess think of it in terms of contact tracing or other, other things like, like that. But, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the jabs, you know, uh, both the mRNA jabs and the uh, viral vector jabs, um, you know, they, they both are, are playing with the, uh, the DNA mechanism. So the mRNA is, right, it's not directly altering or, or tinkering with the DNA structure, but it is messing with the messenger RNA, which is what expresses uh, the DNA or sends the message to express the DNA. Uh, and then when you talk about the viral vectors, what, what you know, you have an adenovirus and that's, uh, you know, loaded with a double-stranded DNA. Uh, effectively, these, you know, are essentially versions of gene therapies. And uh, the term precision education is a play on a term called precision medicine, uh, Obama started the Precision Medicine Initiative. Uh, I don't remember when, but it was, you know, it was obviously before his, the end of his last uh, term. Um, and the, the whole goal of precision medicine is to make all medicine, quote unquote, personalized. And that means based on uh, your, your, your DNA sequences. So basically, 
basically it's it's a whole new industry of gene therapies and, and so you know the whole idea of precision education precision medicine pretty much the same concept just you know different industries or, or different fields um you know I, the, one other thing i guess that is useful to note is um you know there's there's a, a company called agilix and agilix traffics in some learning management systems right so those, those platforms where you upload modules and adaptive learning courseware uh and one of them is buzz it's called buzz and another one is called brain honey well agilix was set up by the people uh the same people that set up ancestry.com i'm not saying that there's a direct link between agilix and ancestry either in terms of corporate structure or in terms of how the data that a student would upload onto agilix would, would you know somehow get funneled back to ancestry but it is interesting to note that right the same people who are interested in, in logging uh basically you know your your uh, your hair your uh, ethnic heritage or your your uh you know your, your family tree uh and i think i think ancestry does also have a uh uh sort of an outsourcing application where well, they'll do dna sequencing or dna tests as well similar to 23andme um, but, you know, if, you know, so it's, it's interesting, uh, you know, sort of institutional relationship there. Oh, absolutely. I mean, <clears throat> certainly, I think, as we've seen already over the course of this, a lot of these circles are quite incestuous, um, which I guess in the grand scheme of things is hardly surprising. Well, all right, then. So what is this IQSEL, IQSEL, I guess maybe how it would be pronounced? Uh, how is it being applied to data mining? So I guess we could break down first the um, basically just, you know, I guess I could elaborate a little more on like uh, socio-emotional psychometrics. Uh, and this is sort of where I mentioned, you know, I mentioned sometimes psychometrics and biometrics is kind of a gray area where they sort of overlap. So with, with socio-emotional uh, learning industry, a lot of it, uh, a lot of the data mining comes through what's called biofeedback wearables. And um, so they're really measuring biometrics, um, but they're inferring psychological states based on the bio, the, the bio rhythms or the, or the biometrics. Okay. And so that's sort of where there's sort of this, this gray area. Um, so, so the wearables that they, they have uh, in the make, um, you know, some schools I, I, I might be using some of them in, in uh, certain ways. I, I know that there's at least some, uh, you know, programs like the M-Wave, uh, HeartMath M-Wave is used in uh, some educational like uh, workshops, okay. Um, but th there's a range of biometrics. So there's EEGs, that's basically brain waves, and there's ECGs, that's basically your heart rhythms. And there's galvanic skin response monitors. And that's looking at skin conductivity. And then there's also like uh, facial facial recognition scans, and basically, you know, through these these different biometrics, they're going to infer psychometrics. So they're going to be able to tell as the student, you know, as the student is learning, is the student happy? Are they are, are they having fun with the uh, with the lesson? Are they frustrated? Are they confused? Or you know, are they having test anxiety? Are they paying attention at all? Right, and so, uh, and based on that, you know, this is another psychometric that can be used to personalize the learning. Right, maybe if the student's not paying attention at all, 
Uh, maybe maybe that student needs more gamified adaptive learning courseware. Okay, uh, if the student is frustrated with it, you know maybe they need a behavioral in intervention. Right. So going back to the wraparound services, uh, and you know so uh, some of the companies that that uh, facilitate these these uh, biofeedback wearables uh, would be let's see. Uh, Effectiva, and this one, this company also traffics in, uh, you know, algorithms for behavioral ads. There's, again, the corporate overlap. Uh, I mentioned M-Wave, and that's, um, that, that measures your heart rate, and that is, uh, it's, it's its own company, but it's promoted by HeartMath, uh, the HeartMath Institute and HeartMath Inc. I, I recently wrote a piece about Barbara Marks Hubbard uh, and how she promoted uh, HeartMath's global uh, coherence initiative uh, and sort of using M-Wave and, and this thing called inner balance are both uh, ECG wearables for um, you know, new age stuff and, and sort of uh, uh, helping people be through, through meditating on the device be sort of uh, compliant with they had a new normal meditation where you were supposed to put this on and everybody. It almost sounds like the e-meter is actually from like Scientology almost, um, though obviously that would be used more for like an interrogation session or something, but that's kind of fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I don't, I don't know a lot about the e-meters. I, you know, I've heard they're largely right. I mean, it was more for the interrogation. I don't know how much, how accurate they were in terms of reading, you know, the biorhythms, uh, but it's definitely like related to, you know, like a lie detector test or, you know, um, another, so, so another company brain co, all right, measures, uh, EEGs. Uh, so that's the brain waves and that, that's popularly used in China. Uh, but it was also developed in partnership with a Chinese corporation, uh, electronics corporation and a bunch of eggheads at Harvard. So it was like, it was a partnership between uh, American academics and, uh, and a Chinese company. And there's a Wall Street Journal uh, video. If you type in Wall Street Journal Brain Code China and you just look for videos on your search engine, you should find it. And you'll see how, it, how you'll see these classrooms with these kids with the headbands on and how it sends that EEG data to a dashboard that the teacher uses. And then it shows how it integrates with the social credit system. Uh, but, you know, to your point about, you know, sort of the old uh, the e-meters and some of these, I guess, early biofeedback technologies in, you know, uh, you know 60s, 70s. Uh, Lawrence P. Grayson, the guy who gave Charlotte the leak, the documents on study 11 and, and uh, the journals and everything that went with it. Uh, I've got a bunch of his uh, other articles that he wrote for different journals. He was an electrical engineer. Uh, and there's one, it's on my web, uh, my website, in the database. I can't remember what journal it was for, but in this, this is in the seventies, the late seventies. And he was looking at the brain co-style technology. And I don't know, I don't know if it was transcranial stimulation or if it was just some other iteration of an EEG, but he was talking about a helmet that could infer your, your psychological state based on your EEGs in the late 70s. All right. So I mean definitely, you know, I don't know if the e-meters, you know, what what was involved in there, but definitely like this stuff is. It's, it's only new in the sense today that it's being commercialized, right? Like the, the, the technology has been, you know, researched and engineered for a, 
a well, long yeah, time. I mean, I think at least as far back as like what the late sixties, early seventies, DARPA was like investigating the uh, the helmets for like the fighter pilots that would essentially be able to uh, read their EEG patterns. I think they help them pilot the planes or something to that effect. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, there's been a lot of like research that's been done on this for many years again that's kind of another thing the uh, kind of ongoing obsession with the eg patterns and a lot of this emerging technology that's not talked about very much yeah 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 Neur- neurocore is another one and that's uh t- that's a company that was funded by betsy devos and she was even on the board of directors for her. she had to step down from it uh, when she was uh, sworn in to be the, the, the uh, secretary of education, um, you know, and um, they also, you know, and there, there's a, there's not a, a, there's sort of an overlap between the EEG headbands and helmets and, you know, like the Neuralink style brain computer interfaces. Uh, they actually can do a lot of, a lot of what they want to do with the, the, basically the brain chips, the brain computer interfaces, like the neural link that's going to go straight into your brain with graphene threads. A lot of that they can do with the transcranial stimulation and, and uh, you know, MRI uh, technologies. Uh, it's just, you know, I guess you get a stronger signal, obviously, if it's, if it's threaded directly into your brain, but a lot of it, you know, I mean, going back to your, you know, what you mentioned about DARPA, which, you know, also was sort of, you know, uh, launched a lot of the early uh, research into, you know, brain computer interfaces more broadly. I think Annie Jacobson's book was uh, the Pentagon's brain or something. Yeah. Like the that. Pentagon's brain. Yeah. 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 And so, so that's, you know, and then, and then, you know, a couple other things would be, you know, again, the GSR bracelets, those are funded by Gates foundation, facial recognition scan stuff. You can do that with Microsoft Azure is kind of looking into that, but uh, so that's sort of like how they use the socio-emotional uh, biometrics to infer psychometrics and then personalize your education. And then obviously, again, you know, we could, you know, the, the, if you take the data mining from a company like 23andMe uh, and you start to correlate it with huge data sets of cognitive behavioral psychometrics based on the student's performance on the adaptive learning courseware and also correlating those genetic sequences with the algorithms you get from the bio where uh biofeedback socio-emotional wearables now you can also EEG patterns yeah yeah i mean you've got everything you got the data mining and also from the social media stuff too you've got the medical and you've got the neuro stuff i mean you've got the whole kit and the caboodle (laughs) yeah yeah and and you can start to core you can start to attribute these things uh to the genes right you can start to you can start to draw the the correlations, you know, and, and I always, you know, it's, it's interesting, you know, a lot of everything goes back to the classics and, you know, really all we're talking about is ethos, logos, pathos, right? And so, you know, basically logos is the thinking part that's the cognitive behavioral pathos is socio-emotional. That's the feeling algorithms. And then the ethos, which is attributed to your character, right? Uh, and Aristotle would also said in terms of your soul would have been your will, uh, you know, that's if your character is your, 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 gene, your genes or your DNA. So, you know, you can really, you know, if you want a simpler way to think about all this jargon, you know, it's basically thinking, feeling and character. Yeah, it's uh, certainly a 
terrifying in a lot of ways uh well let's get into some of the terror i've seen the third season of westworld so i kind of have an idea about how some of this will play out and by the way i think by the time this will be up we got westworld season four up and running so yeah that should be uh very fascinating i'm interested to see where they're going after the third season but anyway how do you see the technologies being used to bring a prc that's people's republic of china folks style social credit system to these united states so I kind of alluded to it already, but basically what you're going to, you know, they're going to aggregate all of the cognitive behavioral thinking algorithms, all the socio-emotional feeling algorithms, and then all of the genetic algorithms into social credit scores. And then those are going to permit or restrict your access to the public square and or commercial services. Um, and again, you know, we can see where they're already doing that with Brainco, right? They're already doing that uh, in China with this uh, technology that was developed, you know, through a partnership between Harvard and a Chinese company. And then we should also note that uh, the Chinese social credit system is managed uh, by the Alipay system, which is run by the Alibaba Corporation. And Alibaba is funded by BlackRock and Salesforce. So we also have uh, American investing in the social credit system itself, not just developing uh, the ed tech that will be used to extract the social credit algorithms, right? And, you know, BlackRock being with, with the, the top or the, the second place in terms of, you know, the, uh, basically who owns uh, the all of the, uh, you know, all the, the largest investors uh, in, in the United States, right? Pretty much has a big share in most of the largest companies, right? And uh, I think they've even been buying up uh, a lot of our uh, uh, housing at this point as well. So, you know, uh, I, I, you know, early on when I saw, uh, you know, at the early, at the beginning of the pandemic, you could kind of, we were kind of a couple weeks behind Italy and China, you know, and I would look over there and I already knew they had the social credit system. And I remember when they, they gave everybody free internet, right? When we were on lockdown, I'm like, well, if you got free internet, you know, basically you're, you're not on the, on a standard contract, right? So part of, you know, basically that gives them more leeway to sort of <laughs> track the data in ways that, you know, uh, in broader ways than what might be the traditional contract when you sign up for a phone or whatever. And, you know, then you start thinking about contact tracing, you know, and then you start thinking about, well, what's China doing with it? And, you know, early on, I've had my students read an article about this since the, since the very beginning of the pandemic. And uh, they had uh, a contact tracing app uh, where basically you, um, you know, it was red, yellow, or green based on did you have it? Were you in an area that had it? And then you couldn't travel or leave your house if you this app on your phone basically told you that, uh, you know, that you either were infected or potentially infected. Well, this thing was, you know, plugged straight into the social credit system, right? And so immediately, and I was saying it from the beginning and, uh, you know, largely turned out to be the case, which was uh, through the, before this, before it was over, they were going to mandate or at least try and they, and they did, you know, but mandate the vaccine and a passport. And the passport is going to be the way that you sort of, begin the social credit system in the United States, because now what you're selling people is their access to, you know, their jobs and you know, grocery stores, public square, commercial services, 
it's not just based on do you got enough money and are you not a criminal right are you not committing a crime it's you know uh it's based on your health algorithms right and so uh you know that's that's uh the the passports can also be used you know on the you know ibm uh what is it the excelsior right you know this blockchain platform can be sort of expanded to include a ledger not just of did you get your jab and are you medically up to date but it can also be expanded to include all these other uh algorithms right all this ed tech data right so you know eventually the idea here is to basically you know get some sort of a digital id uh that hooks up to the internet of things that sort of scans you in real time and tells you whether or not you're allowed to go certain places or do certain things uh based on you know all this ed tech data uh, are you are your jabs up to date? And then you know basically that's your your social score that determines your your access to to your life. Yeah, it's just chilling stuff. All right, and on that note, let's get into the really fun part of the equation. So, how is this tech being used to engineer our AI supercomputers? Well, there's a couple ways. So I guess we sort of. Uh, <clears throat> We sort of touched on one of them already, right? So, you know, through this aggregate of all the cognitive behavioral, the socio-emotional and the genetic algorithms, you know, we're developing AI predictive analytics that are going to be used for social credit uh, that would be regulated in real time through the internet of things. So we've touched on that. Uh, another use or another way that that data is going to be aggregated and, and leveraged is to, you know, working towards the development of basically like a humanoid AGI, right? Artificial general intelligence. So, so just simple AI, right? We, we have, we have a, all sorts of AI, right? And they, they're basically programs that can do a very narrow range of functions, right? They're, pro, they're programmed for something very specific, right? So like the, the adaptive learning coursework is technically AI, right? It's programmed uh, on this feedback loop based on the cognitive behavioral stimulus response, right? But it's not conscious or sentient, at least, right, in the way that a, like artificial general intelligence would be something that could sort of mimic human thinking, right? And so, you know, uh, the way you would need, necessarily, right, you're going to need, it's going to need to understand how does a human think, how does a human feel, uh, and then, you know, uh, you know, maybe kinesthetically, you know, mo motor uh, algorithms, okay, but definitely, right, how does it think and how does it feel, at least in order for it to, to mimic us, right, to basically have natural language algorithms where it can hold a conversation with us and then sort of mimic, you know, certain emotional affect to make us feel like we're not just talking to, you know, a robot, but like something that understands our sense of humor and, you know, maybe has, seems like it has empathy or something like that. Um, and then the third, the third part is, you know, using all these algorithms, again, thinking, the feeling, and the genetic to uh, develop brain-computer interfaces that will enable us to merge with the AGI. So somebody like uh, Elon Musk, right, he literally says something to the effect of, well, you know, AI is going to get smarter than us, and he uh, is basically a quote, if not verbatim. Uh, and was always on the Joe Rogan podcast one of those times. He said, if you can't beat it, join it, right? So if, if AI is going to get smarter than us and can basically outperform us, not just in terms of physical labor, but intellectual labor, then in order for us to be have a meaningful position uh, in the world, then, you know, we need to be able to sort of interface with it. Um, and, you know, basically, you know, I guess sort of 
use it sort of like a Jarvis in uh, uh, what is that movie? Iron Man, right? Is that, is that what it was? Jarvis, that thing that talks to him, that suit. Uh, and, you know, so at this point, you know, we're, we're talking about, you know, when we're merging with AI to come to this higher, you know, use the new age term, this higher consciousness or, or whatever they call it, you know, we're, we're basically, you know, and this is the language that's often used by not just new agers, but, you know, transhumanists is that we'll, you know, we'll attain something that is like godhood, right? And Ray, Ray Kurzweil has said on several occasions that, right, the, the uh, you know, by merging into cyborgs and, uh, you know, fusing with AI will become more and more godlike. You had somebody like uh, oh, Sergey Brin and Larry Page, uh, they said that they wanted Google to be the mind of God. You've got uh, Yuval Noah Harari wrote his Homo Deus, and that basically means, uh, you know, man, the God or, or God, man. Um, and so, you know, there's plenty of, you know, sort of uh, conflations with, you know, not just uh, becoming becoming gods through the, you know, AI or, or, or by merging with AI. In fact, you know, the, the, the term transhumanism is coined by Julian Huxley. Uh, it's in a book, I think it's about 1958 or 1959, and the book is New Bottles for New Wine. Um, and, you know, that's, again, that's a play on, uh, you know, biblical scripture, the gospel, it's in the gospel of Matthew and the gospel of, of Luke, right, where, you know, when, when you're born again in, in Christ, then you become uh, the new human, right, through Christ, uh, for Huxley, right, you know, in other words, you know, you need a new bottle for your new wine, or for a new body for your new your new spirit and you know for Huxley that means you know uh basically you need a new cyborg body for your new uh AI consciousness uh and then you know and so that's sort of the the, the merging part where you know you'll we're going to engineer ourselves into God through a merger with AI but uh you know there's also sort of this other flavor where you know developing sort of a super computer uh, sort of a humanoid robotic agi god that is like maybe separate from it uh, us right and so you know basically worship in other words worshiping ai uh as as it's as a separate entity uh you know depending on the degree to, to, to which you know they're successful in merging you know if you again if you look at something like what is it uh Hanson robotics the sophia robot right which is you know that's uh, ben gertzel you know who's funded by Epstein, uh, uh, but Sophia, you know, again, being uh, another, you know, has a, has a, uh, the connotation of, right, the goddess of wisdom, another sort of, you know, pseudo uh, deified or, or, you know, religious connotation, and then you had something called the way of the future church of artificial intelligence, which apparently, I, you know, looked it up again recently, apparently it doesn't exist anymore, I think only because the guy that set it up went to jail for some kind of crime or something like that. I don't know if it was fraud or whatever it was, but, but that would be in a, a situation where, right. You have sort of this AI God that's, you know, sort of separate from the, the human species and we worship it uh, versus, you know, we, we merge with it and become the AI God, you know, and so those are, those are sort of the tracks that uh, are, um, you know, where, where the data, <clears throat> or the data that's getting mined through all these different ed tech devices and predictive analytics are going to uh, create these, you know, AGI supercomputers uh, that, that, you know, again, will either 
we'll either merge with or we will worship. <clears throat> yeah, it's a, a glorious uh, future that uh, some segments of the elites envision, certainly. <laughs> All right, as a bonus, what role does gamification play in all this before we wrap up? Well, you can actually trace it back to, again, uh, the, and I guess I've mentioned this a few times, uh, sort of the uh, operant conditioning, uh, you know, stimulus response, sort of cognitive behavioral uh, learning modules, okay? Uh, it's, it's just... In, instead of just having it sort of be static learning stimuli, you know, again, short answer, multiple choice matching, you know, uh, you'll create sort of a simulation uh, in which the student has to perform maybe maybe the workforce task or uh, maybe it's a lab, right? Maybe it's uh, actually, <laughs> uh, oh, you know, when the CARES Act came out and they handed out all this money, I, I'm an adjunct professor and the uh, I managed to be, you know, the adjunct voice of reason uh, on this CARES committee that was supposed to overlook how we spent the money, uh, you know, and, you know, the short end of that is, you know, uh, I was the only person to vote no on, <laughs> on pretty much anything, but certainly a lot of things. But a, one, a lot of the things that came in were, well, we can't be in person, we need simulations. And like for like the dental tech uh, program and some of the nursing programs and so they came up you know and this is you can think of this sort of as a gamified thing right and so um you know maybe like a sims remember that game sims and you know and so instead of uh it, it was just kind of silly to me like it's like maybe it would be better if it was like 3d vr and you had like smart clothes and you could feel you know the the person's pulse and things like that but I don't even know if that would how accurate that would be, but uh, they had like this two dimensional cartoon, this like cartoon character, and you know I don't know he's he looks he's looking sick, and then it'll tell you something like what's his temperature or maybe his skin tone will change, and then you're supposed to diagnose uh, the, the 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 dude, and then that's supposed to simulate uh you know the the lab you know what would always be done in sort of like an internship or a lab uh but again you know it's so so you're basically you're just making a game out of the stimulus response uh method of educational psychology conditioning um but you know there's also a you know it also targeted the reason why it's i, I guess you know promoted is more effective is because you know they always want you to make learning fun make it fun fun which you know, I mean, I think learning is fun, but, you know, it should also be challenging, right? I mean, uh, real learning doesn't happen until you <laughs> so you move beyond a comfort zone, right? Like you should be out there sort of uh, on the on the edges of, you know, what you know or, or what you're familiar with, which should always be sort of, a, you know, should require some cognitive effort. Uh, but, you know, by making a game out of it, uh, you're almost like tricking the, the students into learning, right? So it's like, it's like, you know, they want to like plug the sort of the learning content or, you know, sort of uh, bury it almost like subliminally, like, you know, propaganda placement into this game. So they, they're really just trying to get this dopamine trigger, right? So, you know, that's again, the reward punishment system based on the uh, operant conditioning, obviously with a heavy emphasis on reward. And the reward is the dopamine response that you get when you successfully complete, you know, whatever task it is in the, 
in the game. And, uh, you know, so I guess that has a, you know, I guess it's more effective again than the static uh, learning module. Uh, and, you know, I guess, you know, move, moving forward, um, you know, now that they've got the whole, the, the metaverse thing. And my book looked at, you know, VR and AR um, wasn't a metaverse at the time. It was, you know, pretty much a, a lot of very fringe, I guess you would say, or sort of, you know, something to, to yet to be coming down the pipe. But one of the things that I sort of uh, inferred uh, based on just, you know, how data mining works and how it's sort of this recursive process of, you know, data mining to condition, but also data mining to program. And then out of the program comes a new technology that enables a new layer of more sophisticated data mining, which then can be used to develop more sophisticated programs and more sophisticated AI. And, you know, if you, if you put the student into sort of a VR program, um, you know, uh, VR slash AR, uh, you can help to data mine sort of this this Jarvis pair, right? Again, this you know, so so in, I, I think it's I think that's what it's called in uh, uh, the Iron Man, right? So he's got this suit and it like he wears it and it enables him to do all kinds of stuff, but it like can scan everything, right? Like it gives him all kinds of data feedback, right? And so it's like it's like a second brain that like like helps him out. Uh, but it also, right, because it's a suit, like you know, it, it has kinesthetic functions, right? So it enables him to use his body and, you know, I guess superhuman or, you know, use the, the term we just discussed, like, God, you know, sort of godlike powers. Um, and so through VR, right, you, you're not just, again, you're not just data mining the, the thinking and the feeling algorithms. Uh, but, you know, if the student's wearing like smart gloves and a smart shirt and things like that can actually data mine sort of kinesthetic algorithms or physiological algorithms that could help to develop humanoid robotic AI or something that could be, that could help give you feedback uh, in terms of not just, uh, you know, interacting with AI and VR, uh, but also in terms of AR, right? And so all the data that you get from the VR world, eventually you can take that and the student can have like a Google Glass on his or her head and you walk around and let's say you do a field trip somewhere, I don't know, museum or I don't know, like Grand Canyon. Okay. And this, and, and if we're, if, if everything is sort of saturated in, in the internet of things, then this AR, uh, you know, this, this Google glass thing could be calibrated with the data from the VR to basically, you know, give you like pop-ups in the, in this AR world. So you, you know, you're, you're going around, you know, the, uh, Grand Canyon and you know you can sort of click on this this goggle and it's going to give you a pop-up screen that tells you something about the history of you know this particular area in the Grand Canyon or something about the geology or something something else uh and so you know um and so th that's another way that I think you know particularly like VR and AR gamification sort of enables uh, another layer of data mining uh and they can sort of develop more sophisticated AI for, you know, the internet of things and sort of giving you other, other types of feedback instead of just, you know, social credit analytics. 
Yeah, well, I think too, I mean, it also would in theory encourage more active participation as opposed to like standard or you know, conventional kind of standard uh, learning and teaching techniques, uh, which I would, I think has been theorized, but also be a more useful means of uh, data mining and so forth. Um, and also probably also a more useful means of, uh, you know, the behavioral molding of people. I mean, again, getting them to actually actively participate in things is always much more effective than having them playing a passive part. So it's a big part of instilling beliefs, changing behaviors, all that good stuff. Yeah, they, they actually had a game that uh, was attached to a, I used to teach a GED course. And, uh, and, and this wasn't part of the modules you had to do to get your GED, but it had like, I guess it was like build your skills in this one game. It was like, I don't know how it actually did what it said it did, which was so based on the score that you get in this sort of skill building game. And I can't remember what the game was like, like what you, you know, what the task was. I don't know if it's like those, you know, space invaders or whatever it was. I can't remember, but I do remember that the, if you earn enough points, like for every so many points you earned, it said it was going to send so many grains of rice to starving people in Africa. So like, you know, sort of uh, making a game out of it and then uh, not just, you know, the dopamine trigger of, you know, getting the, the reward for winning the game, but then it's like this emotional, right? Pulling on your emotions. Yeah, 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 yeah. You're feeding starving life. children in the developing world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's beautiful, man. <laughs> Uh, all right. Well, it has uh, certainly been a fascinating conversation, sir. We'll have to have you back on the farm here at some point. Maybe talk some Barbara Hart, Marks Hubbard or something like that more in depth. Um, but anyway, I hope everybody has enjoyed this as much as uh, we have recording it. And uh, on that note, as always, I want to thank you guys so much for listening. And good night and good luck to you all.